The reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2 to 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Um, some of you know me quite well may be surprised to find out that I'm quite a big fan of video games um, this may be kind of brand new information for some of you but I absolutely love them I love the idea of getting lost in a brand new world all virtually constructed and just looks amazing and there's so many different types of games as well you get action, you get adventure you get shoot 'em ups you get puzzles and you get driving and driving games are the ones I want to focus on right about now. I have a game called Burnout Paradise. I often play it with some of my friends. And it's such a great game, especially the multiplayer part of the game. It's very simple. All you have to do are follow certain challenges and you take turns in doing each challenge. Some of them can be as fast, you know, as simple as racing around a track as far as you can, fastest time wins. Or you've got to do some kind of barrel roll or smash a billboard or something like that. Occasionally, though, the game may throw a bit of a curveball. Sometimes your brakes won't be working. Sometimes they may try to reverse your steering so right becomes left and left becomes right. Or they'll stick on your accelerator, you've got no brakes, you've got nothing, and then it could go a bit wrong. Now, me and my friends, we're, we're quite well versed in video games. It's kind of our generation, it's kind of our thing. We used to play them quite a lot. But my dad, however, is from a bit of a different generation and isn't too familiar with the controller for the PlayStation or the gameplay or the sort of tactics that you should be using. So one time, we're playing this game, me and my friends and my dad, and we come to a very simple challenge. Race to the end of the road 
fastest time wins. Nothing else. Should be very simple. What could possibly go wrong? We all take our turns, me and my friends, and then the controllers pass to my dad, and we discover what could go wrong in such a simple task. Instead of going straight down the road, so I take a turning where he doesn't need to, and is now exploring the virtual streets of some constructed city without a clue where he's going, going faster and faster and faster. We say, no, no, stop, turn around, you need to turn around, hit your brake, hit your brake. Which one's the brake? The, the one in the back, one in the back. And of course, not being familiar with the controller, ends up pressing the boost button, going even faster. And we say, no, you need to stop, you need to turn around. And then time runs out. He lost the round and not surprisingly lost the game. So, a bit of a shame on that one. Um, the problem there was speed. Going too fast. Not being able or maybe being reluctant to slow down. The church in Corinth had a problem with speed. They were probably so excited about this new church and the freedom that they could find within it. Um, but they're just in so much danger of travelling too fast and overlooking what was socially acceptable for them in that time. In chapter 11 of this letter to Corinthians, Paul's beginning a new section in his letter that will hope us to you know, hope that force us to drive us drive discerningly and be prepared to break. In these four chapters, chapters 11, 12, 13 and 14, Paul's concern is how God's people conduct themselves in a church worship setting. He starts off by talking about gender distinction in the church and then the Lord's Supper and then spiritual gifts. Tonight we're going to be looking at gender distinction, which is quite a big thing to look at. In this passage, Paul is saying to honour your head. And Paul shares some main principles which help, us guide, help to guide us in understanding what this means. So he starts off in verse 2, saying, I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding to the tradition just as I pass them on to you. Now in my head, I can only imagine Paul writing this down or saying this with a bit of a strange look on his face. Because the church in Corinth really hadn't been following everything he had told them. They'd been going completely against it. So him writing this, I imagine he's like, yeah, uh, well done guys, you, you've done a great job, keep it up. Um, you know, could do better, but you know, we'll, we'll get on to that, we'll get on to that. I mean, later on in the chapter, before he starts the discussion about the Lord's Supper, he actually comes out and clearly says what he wants to say. He says, I have no praise for you. You've messed up. You know, church meetings are doing more harm than good. So it's quite possible that Paul wanted to start this discussion with praise, to hopefully lift the spirits of the church. There is some wisdom in this. Um, if you're often criticism to someone, sometimes it's quite good to start off with something positive, and so they're more receptive to listen. And then you slam the truth into them hard and hopefully they'll pay attention and take it on board. Before we get too deep into this text, just want to add kind of a personal note. This has been a real challenge to prepare and a real challenge to kind of write and organise all my thoughts. What we're looking at tonight could be regarded as contentious and possibly controversial. 
um, what I'm kind of offering is just one point of view, one of many regarding women and gender in the church. It's certainly possible that opinions differ in this church. They certainly do in many other churches. Um, It's also important to remember that this text was written in the first century to a very specific church. So the question is, what of this is for us and what was for them? And this text is in the Bible. It has to be addressed. We can't just skip that bit because we don't like the sound of it. Everything in the Bible is for building up the church. So we need to delve in and we need to look at it. The Bible has authority. What we're doing is just exploring. So we need to approach it with humility. We need to approach it with prayer. And we need to approach it with our seatbelts on because it could get a little bit bumpy. Um, But we'll jump in and just see what happens. Paul continues at verse 3. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. In the Greek translation, man or woman could also be translated as husband and wife, just to add a little bit more context. And the head of Christ is God. Here Paul is introducing the idea of what we can call headship. But here straight away is where things might get a little bit confusing. With a word like head, it's quite difficult to define. In this context, it could have three possible meanings. One being a meaning of prominence, importance, and then a meaning of authority, or a meaning perhaps of source. We face the same sort of ambiguity when we're describing the the top of a mountain, the head of a mountain, the prominent point on a mountain, or perhaps the leader or head of a company, or the source or head of a uh, river. But most of the time when we're not referring to our own actual physical heads, it seems to be we're looking at the idea of head um, as an important thing to look at, something that is prominent. Paul seems to suggest that just as Christ the Son acknowledges the prominence or authority of the Father, and men acknowledge the prominence of Christ over them, so women acknowledge the prominence of men in a male-female relationship, i.e. husband and wife. But prominence in a relationship does not imply superiority or inferiority. Certainly it does not carry that meaning in a relationship between a father and a son. And it would not mean that between men and women in the church either. While Jesus was on earth, he modelled sacrificial leadership. He always put his father first and did his will. Even though he himself was fully God and equal to the Father. He chose of his own accord to grant the Father prominence, to say the Father is the head. Likewise, men are called to submit to Christ and put him first in every area, meaning to live sacrificially in every area of your life. In a similar vein, the head of the woman is man. Evidently, Paul refers to any woman who is in a dependent relationship to a man, such as a wife to a husband or a daughter to a father. Paul probably did not mean every woman universally, since he said the male is the head of the woman, but not a woman or women. 
He was evidently not talking about relationship involving men and women. For example, the relationship between men and women in the workplace. Paul is saying that as a wife, as a daughter, as a church member, ladies ought to honour their spiritual head, husband, father, church elders. Paul continues, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Again, I must stress that Paul was writing in the first century and addressing the people of Corinth. Telling them that men should not have their heads covered when they pray or prophesy, but that women should. Men who did not cover their head in this culture honoured Christ as prominent. In Corinth, women were called to cover their heads with a scarf or a shawl. This wasn't some kind of fancy hat or pathetic little fashionable thing. This was a scarf or a shawl that covered the whole heads, girls at the back, the whole head, and concealed all of their hair. Yeah. This demonstrated their respect for their husbands and to church leadership. To refuse to cover her hair would be disgraceful, as long hair was viewed as very attractive and alluring, and are most likely have attracted the gaze of men. The movement of hair as well could also be seen as flirtatious. These offers of attraction were definitely unhelpful, especially during time of worship. Obviously, this would detract from the real reason the church was gathered together. Could this happen today in churches in the UK in 2013? Almost certainly. For now, just as back then, women can still dress provocatively. But worship is not the time to dwell on male or female attractiveness. Worship is a time to focus on God and to focus on his word. Women, therefore, have responsibility before both God and men to dress modestly and not to attract unnecessary attention to themselves. And men, don't think you're off the hook. We also have responsibility to vigilantly guard our minds during worship. We attend church to look at God, not the opposite sex. We need to seek to love, serve and absolutely honour each other. This is for both men and for women. Practically speaking, this responsibility is to be shared in the family unit. A husband needs to inform his wife if her attire is not modest. A wife would need to seek her husband's opinion on that matter. Any father worth his salt should be able to tell his daughter to go back in and get changed before she goes back out. And any godly daughter would do well to honour her father in that and seek his opinion. Now, I am well aware, I am not married yet, and I do not have a daughter. So some of you may think, I don't think you have a place to say something like that, but I urge you, please, kind of go with me on this. (laughs) Older women in the church should help younger women dress modestly and with discretion, as it is advised in the book of Titus. Women need to be reminded to dress with respect at all times, but especially when they come to worship the Lord. 
So as we're talking about dress codes, the big question, should women be wearing head coverings in church today? Probably not. I don't think this is how Paul would have us understand this passage. What is cultural? What is normal? When women go out in public today in Olympia without a head covering, are they dishonouring their husbands? Probably not unless they are the most strictest of Muslims. I suggest that a head covering is merely cultural, while honour and submission is the normal principle. After all, the situation nowadays is quite different, at least in the West. For a Christian woman in the West to wear a head covering today could be seen to be a distinctively uncomfortable experience. Many women, even biblically submissive wives, resist the notion precisely because they feel awkward or self-conscious. But the head coverings in Paul's days were intended only to display the woman's subordination, not her humiliation. Today, making women wear head coverings in church could be like asking them to shave their heads. And this would be going against what Paul is advising. To wear head coverings in many churches also be very confusing for visitors and awkward if you made any visiting women wear a headscarf. One point I do want to make from these few verses is that men and women were both equally free to pray and to prophesy when the church was gathered. The meaning of the term prophecy can sometimes be debated, but if you read ahead to chapter 14 of uh, Corinthians, you can see that prophecy is for the building up of the church. Uh, It's very close to what we could call teaching or preaching nowadays. It's reflecting or illuminating the word of God. It could take the form of a word of instruction, of challenge, or of comfort. Women in the early church who had the gift of prophecy were free to exercise it. They're also permitted to pray in public meetings. Paul gave women great freedom. But as he read in one of his letters to Timothy, at that time he didn't allow women to speak openly or to preach openly in authority uh, during a corporate worship service. Moreover, Paul said they are to honour their head. Paul isn't trying to repress women or to restrain them from using their spiritual gifts, but he is trying to impress on them the need for modesty and virtue in their dress and their conduct during a worship service. Paul moves on to another argument, saying you need to honour your head for the sake of creation. Verses 7 and 8 say, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Spiritual headship has been true since God created the world. The Genesis creation narrative shows that both man and woman equally bear the image and glory of God. But in Genesis 2, when God created Eve, he took her from Adam's rib. So Paul says woman was created from the man and for the man. In other words, women, you complete us. You complete us men. You are the help and strength that a man needs. You help men be all that God desires. Women reflect the glory of man when she submits to God's order. But what does glory mean here? To begin with, as many scholars are recognising today, the culture back then was based on honour and on shame. 
That is, people normally try to protect their family name, their family honour in everything they did, and they would not knowingly disgrace their family, their traditions or their history. The idea that this concept may lie in the background here is clear from references that Paul leaves to uh, dishonour and disgrace in earlier verses. By being unveiled, a woman's bringing shame on herself and on her reputation, as well as on that of her family. By contrast, Paul seems to imply in verse 7 that a woman should be bringing honour and glory to herself and her family, and especially to her husband and any other men in her life, like her father or even her sons. Ladies, is this your goal? To bring honour and glory to the families to which you belong? If it is, then the word for you today is to honour your head. This next verse could be quite a challenge. It is certainly a challenge to kind of look into. It's verse 10. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. This can be quite a difficult verse to read, especially if you're using different translations because the connotations can seem quite different. Um, And in a King James Version, for example, it says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Or the NET says, for this reason, a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, this, this was quite a challenge looking at this verse, so I offer my kind of view with humility. Um, this may be new for a lot of you. We are just exploring the Bible um, and we're discovering something new, so let's take a look. For a start, this statement is a summing up. Paul is kind of talking a lot about women covering their heads, and then he says, for this reason, women ought to have authority over her own head. So he's spoken before, and now he's coming up to a summing up. Regarding the notion of authority, you could easily read this as maybe having the right to choose. The right to choose whether to submit or not. The woman would have authority over the head, the man, to do as she chooses. A woman would have authority over her own head, to do as she chooses. Now, these final words, because of the angels. Looking this up, it seems that many interpreters really can't agree what this could mean. My thought on it is that Paul is referring to good angels who observe worship services. Perhaps Paul is encouraging women to worship with the same submissive humility as the angels do. Since angels are the guardians of God's created order, it would seem disgraceful for them to observe women behaving badly. And the bottom line here again would be to honour your head. Now in verses 11 to 12, there is a beautiful and wonderful message about the mutual nature between men and women, especially in marriage. Paul is still arguing here from the notion of creation, and from the beginning it was clear there was always mutual independence. Verses 11 and 12 read, However in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. We simply can't get along without each other. 
We are mutually dependent on each other. We complement each other. And Paul is so concerned to promote love between the sexes. Neither man nor woman, because of different positions, different advantages, different lives, should think one more superior or more inferior than the other. Nor should a man treat a woman with contempt or condescension. And nor should a woman treat a man with those same things. Paul says that this mutual dependence on the ma- of the man and the woman is grounded back in creation since the start of all things. The first woman, Eve, was originally created from the man, from Adam's rib. But from that point on, every single man is birthed by a woman. He says that interdependence is also grounded in the Lord himself. All things are from God. Because it's another reason for humility in the relationship between men and women. Up to now, it seems that Paul is trying to suggest inferiority of women to men. Partly on the basis of the story of creation, where women came from man. But in these verses, he's backtracking to remind us that ever since creation, and the creation of Eve, the order has been reversed. Man comes from the woman. When all is said and done, there is a quality between man and woman. Neither of them is independent of each other. Both need each other. So Paul is insistent here, as we stand before God, our creator and our redeemer, there is neither male nor female. This, I believe, is part of Paul's struggle in this section. He's writing this down. He does not want anything he writes to be interpreted to mean that in the Lord, women are inferior to men. We all come from God. And all of us equally belong to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So we need to honour our heads for the sake of creation. Paul then goes on to say, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In verse 13. Here Paul is appealing to people who come to consider what is socially acceptable for themselves in the place they were then. For people of Corinth in the first century, it wasn't acceptable for women to have their heads uncovered or to speak openly in public. So the question arises, what is acceptable now for us here in this place? Things may be different socially and culturally, but our attitude should always be the same. It should be God-centred. And in Paul's final argument, he appeals to apostolic authority. And verse 16 says, But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. If any of his readers didn't feel inclined to follow Paul's reasoning, he informed that the other churches are followed just as he explained. He said, look at those other churches. They're doing okay. Why are you struggling so much? Some women in Corinth are evidently discarding their head coverings in public worship. And interestingly, Paul is using the idea of practice or custom in this last verse of the section, much like he did in the first verse of the section. He's using it to frame his entire discussion. The issue was obedience to what Paul has said from beginning to the end. Will the ladies of the church of Corinth obey biblical instruction? 
Will Christian women today be obedient to carry out God's desire for orderly and honourable worship? So we're um, kind of coming into land a little bit here. We've possibly opened up a rather large can of worms, but I think that's quite exciting. Um, So often we read and explore the Bible and we leave with more questions than we do answers. I don't want to be misunderstood though, so I've got some key points to say. Firstly, in the eyes of God, there is total 100% equality between man and women. Men, we have a part to play in supporting women in their ministry, to treat women with respect, with honour and with love. Women, you have a responsibility to take care in your conduct and appearance within times of worship and in your wider lives. We should all strive to love one another, support one another and honour one another. I began by speaking about speed. The Church of Corinth is going too fast by the standards of that society. And Paul was concerned that this could be an issue for the early church as people looked in, wondering what this new thing was about. Are we, as a church, are we going too fast? Are we even able to keep pace with society? Or are we really struggling? Are we really falling behind with what's important? The world out there is constantly changing. Surely the challenge we face is trying to keep up. There's a lot to reflect on here. There's a lot to pray about. And so often, it's something the church needs to consider as a whole and something we need to consider as individuals. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you made us all equal. That before you there is neither male nor female. And Lord, we pray for the state of the church as it is. For churches that are falling behind what society is kind of expecting or where society and culture is going. We pray that you may empower them to move forward and to press on the accelerator. And Lord, we praise you for those churches who are so powerful and doing such amazing things as they keep up with society. Lord, we pray that they'll keep a steady pace. And for Lord, for some churches that may appear to be going a bit too fast, Lord, we pray that they'll apply the brake and reassess where they are. And here as we consider where this church is, how fast this church is going, I pray that you'll show us the direction. Tell us when we need to speed up or when we need to slow down in so many different aspects of the life of this church. We pray that this will be a time of renewal and a time of really exciting things. And that you'll guide all our thoughts and our prayers. Amen.